1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Drones Who Cannot Be Named edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, still basking in the glow of celebrities who descended upon our fair city for the White House Correspondents dinner last weekend. Nerd. Totally no celebrity, by the way. Can I,
2: can I just point C-less out... C-list
1: celebrities this year.
0: That's can I just... all we get. We're Washington. We're not sexy. That's oh. it.
2: Can I point out that I, I tweeted some grouchy things about... Did you? Uh, about nerd so prom. So grouchy. And they,
1: they continue. <laughs> Remind to, us what they, they were. <laughs>
2: so I, I, I tweeted my honest feelings about nerd prom. I tweeted, I skipped prom as a kid, and I've skipped nerd prom for each of the last 20 years. Never been, never regretted, no interest. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. <laughs> And then I tweeted hashtag
1: #jealous.
0: No kidding. And then I tweeted <laughs> hashtag #overcompensating.
2: Real nerds don't need prom, and
1: they
0: don't
2: need garish facsimiles <laughs> of it either. Real nerds have books and ideas.
1: Ooh! Ooh. And wow, I read books on Saturday nights.
2: Snob. <laughs> and these tweets, people keep retweeting them. I mean, they've like, like oddly touched a nerve yeah. with everybody who is grouchy about. Uh, nerd prom. Yeah. And I've, I've, um, so I've been getting a lot of positive feedback for being antisocial and arrogant and kind of a jerk.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I would have thought that it would have, like, you know, so these are the nerd prom defenders who came out after you. No, 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 no,
2: no. This, they, these are people who have also, hate nerd prom, and they keep retweeting it. And
0: You know, there are extroverted nerds, there are introverted nerds. I don't understand why we have to be dogmatic about this. If you want to start an alt-stay-home-and-read-on-the-night-of-the-White-House-correspondence-dinner thing, that's what Twitter's for, man. Go for
1: it. You should get Twitter to sponsor it and then have like a rope line. Can I just say
2: that the only only (laughs) truly awesome thing that I saw about nerd prom this week was uh the photo of shane on facebook posted by his actual prom date oh yeah that was a heck of a that was um, good then it was a
1: he looked uh young
2: unbelievably
0: you had that whole james spader long floppy hair thing yeah
1: yeah i did have much longer and much more hair than yeah that's, that's, that's a good commercial. I, I want to grow up to be James Bader. In, in fact, I think that picture is
2: going to have to be our, uh, picture for the week that goes on the site.
1: Alright, we can yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, that would, uh, that was my high school friend, my theater pal, Lindsay. And I was a sophomore. She took me to her prom. Oh. Wow. I was like, I was at prom. I went to, three proms when i was nine I maybe mean, i went to we four, called that
0: actually. cradle robbing at my high school
1: yeah well we called it a lot of things too yeah. <laughs> uh, i do want to say by the way that i did meet one very cool celebrity i met sophie turner who you may also know as sansa stark from game of thrones
0: see i don't watch no? game of thrones oh, y'all. i'm okay. sorry all
1: right we have to move on but we need to rectify this i too was a non-believer and have since seen the light
2: I, I think could we're not get go, through book one. I so. think we're
1: going to go from Game of Thrones to Game of Thrones. Ta-da! Segway. Uh, before we do that, though, um, we have to remind all our listeners that we are just one week away from the first ever Triple Entente Beer Summit. This is our first ever live show, you guys, uh, where Rational Security... Uh, and, obviously, I did not introduce my friends, but, you know, they are Ben Wittis, Markoff and what is hello. The three of us are going to be uh joining our friends from the Lawfare Podcast, which is sort of like Ben double-dipping, and also the Steptoe Cyber Podcast with our friend Stuart Baker.
2: By the way, if you guys don't listen to the
1: Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, yeah.
2: it really is a very fun and really unusually valuable resource. Yeah,
1: it's great. It's a great podcast, and they've been there. Are they at their 100th episode yet? Uh, No, (laughs) no, sort
2: of 70th or thereabouts, but they're, they're, they just do uh, a remarkable roundup of the sort of state of cybersecurity law and consumer privacy law. They just, they have a great group of people with an amazing variety of expertise.
1: And I
0: think the best way to celebrate that is to go out and get Drunk
1: yes, at, we're gonna get drunk. That's what we're gonna do on Thursday, May seventh. It's gonna be Ben. Why don't you tell people actually how they can get tickets too? And it's gonna be at the um, uh, the what do we call it? It's the firehouse it's around it's the corner the, from the my Washington house. The Washington Firehouse. The Washington Firehouse, which is on North Capitol in Bloomingdale, if you know that neighborhood, literally around the corner from my house. So you can
2: drop in on Shane uh, at Shane's house and check out his house. Uh, you can get tickets through the Lawfare website um and uh we've been posting regular updates so it should be if you just look up the triple entente beer summit on lawfare do come it'd be great to meet you we've got hundreds of people who are downloading this podcast every week and we only know a small fraction of you so come have a beer with us
1: absolutely please come hang out it's gonna be a lot of fun and uh, we hope to see you there uh, all right let's get to this week's show um the new york times names the senior cia officials who have ran the agency's drone program? Were they right or wrong to do it? And speaking of drones, it turns out the CIA's program in Pakistan was given an unusually lo- unusually long leash, and Bashar al-Assad may be losing in Syria. Plus, in our object lessons, spy fashion, you too can dress like a spook. Ben, why don't you kick us off with wordplay? Um, the Times this week took the, uh, the the unusual step, the controversial step, we might say, of publishing the names of senior CIA officials. Uh, who have been running the drone program over the agency's objections and drew quite a response from a senior intelligence community lawyer. Uh, Fill us in on what happened and what the feedback has been.
2: So over the weekend, the Times ran a story about uh, the drone program and the people who run it. And sort of the import of the story was that the program is, is really run by some of the same people who ran the rendition, detention, interrogation program. Uh, and, you know, they've gone from one controversy to another, and in the course of doing it, they named a few of them. And this, uh, got a little bit of attention, uh, over the weekend, but not a whole lot. But then on Monday, uh, Bob Litt, who is the general counsel of the, uh, director of national intelligence, uh, in a panel event at SICE, uh, really blasted the New York Times for this decision in very, very strong language. He uh, said the Times had disgraced itself and uh, in remarks that I think in retrospect were clearly uh, prepared. I mean, it he, he was a very well thought out kind of broadside against the Times, uh, laid out the reason that this was uh, very inappropriate this morning the Times uh, sort of responded um, in the form of an interview that we published uh, on Lawfare between the New York Times' executive editor, Dean Baquet, and Jack Goldsmith. And Jack uh, called up Baquet and had it, it's got to be a half hour, three quarters of an hour interview that he simply transcribed and published without comment in which Baquet lays out his defense of the times decision which amounts to look the CIA here is running uh, what's essentially a military program it's a you know it's a lethal force program over a long period of time it involves thousands of you know you know a, a large agency basically the the counterterrorism center and um the names of the individuals who run this program are fairly well known in the uh, countries in which they served. And the CIA didn't make much of a case that there was anything significant at stake involved in the publication of these names. Um, and so, um, you know, it ends up being a fairly rich debate, in my opinion, uh, that I'm not entirely sure how to evaluate. And when 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 I first read Litt's remarks, I I thought he had really, you know, made a made a strong set of points uh, against the Times. But I actually found uh, uh, some of Bequet's response persuasive as well. And so I'm I, I think it's a it's a fascinating subject and it's a fascinating exchange.
1: You know, as I saw them publish the names, and <clears throat> I should say. My personal position is I think they should have published them. I support the fact that they did. And I think that the reasoning that they've offered is strong. But it struck me that, you know, these are not the only officials whom journalists, myself included, have agreed to withhold the names of. I mean, there's, you know, we have all agreed not to name the National Security Council official who is in charge of the hostage negotiations work who families of hostages taken by ISIS, say threaten them with prosecution. We've agreed not to name that person. And I just wondered, I mean, it, made, it really made me think about my own sort of standards on this, Have we become, frankly, too um, accommodating uh, in some of these cases. I mean, there's an argument to be made, I think, that some of these officials who are serving in these positions in a covert status in the CIA, they weren't always covert, right? I mean, there have been, historically, many of them have been serving in overt positions. So... I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Tamara? I mean, are we being too accommodating? You, you have, being the only person who's a former senior U.S. <laughs> official in the room. I mean, I mean, I know that it the argument's me- always been that it's protecting their security, but at the same time, like, these guys work in Washington. It's an open secret who they are.
0: Right. So, look, I, I think that if you look at what the Times published, they were basically talking about people who, yes, have, had a period of their career when they were out in the field, but they, they're, at this point, senior bureaucrats. Um, and they're acting in their capacity as managers and overseers, not, you know, out there in the field in ways where they would be endangered and not likely to be ever again at this phase in their professional lives. And so I do think it's that the traditional CIA argument is a weak argument, although I understand why the CIA would want to not allow a precedent to be set here and would want to hold to principle. I just don't, I think that in my experience, both, you know, thinking about, anonymity as a senior official, but also having been in a position of having a conversation with a reporter asking them to withhold information for the sake of security, you got to be able to make a case-specific argument for that particular piece of anonymity if you want it to be respected. And to expect the press to, you know, do it on the basis of some abstract principle is ridiculous. That's just not what the press is for, and that's not the way it works. That seems to me a a somewhat different issue than the issue of the national security official who negotiated over the hostages, because that's much more about somebody acting in an official capacity, implementing policies that they themselves only have a certain small degree of responsibility for. So then it's about, are you making an individual publicly culpable for something when they really are just a cog in a big machine?
1: And that's been the administration's argument.
0: And that to me is a very, very different and actually much more complicated argument to make. In this particular case, I think there's reason to respect it. But I I just think the cases
1: are not alike. But aren't the CIA drone program guys also, I mean, they're not, are they not cogs in the machine too? I mean.
2: That is in fact with part of, a part of Litt's argument but i actually think that there's a difference between the general proposition that you know the press's thumb should be solidly on the side of disclosure with respect to and publication with respect to information that may have security implications and the specific case of protected identities of you know covert and and undercover people and the difference is that there's a specific statute that makes it a crime to reveal protected people and agents and officers and there isn't a particular crime that says hey if tomorrow witness says to you uh this could cause damage um and so this is an area where congress has kind of looked at the generic problem And said, okay, we want to make, you know, carve this area kind of out of First Amendment protection and say, you're generally not allowed to do it. And I think there's a, and by the way, the, the, the the press does, generally does not regard that statute or hasn't traditionally regarded that statute as unconstitutional.
0: Well, right, but I still think, fine, it's a statute. Then the press and the lawyers for the newspaper will interpret that statute and the administration is going to have its interpretation of that statute, but the idea that the press should automatically defer to the administration's view of the statute in a given instance
2: doesn't—I don't buy that. No, but it's a question of what the default is, right? It, it is right. You so know, the
0: newspaper will do what its lawyers say it can legally do, and and it should, as a newspaper, walk right up to the line
2: of what it thinks it can legally do.
1: Did Bob Litt make the argument that the Times had broken the law by publishing their names?
2: He did not, Um and the Times, I think, probably didn't violate the law given the specific way the statute is written to protect certain press activities. And presumably their um,
1: lawyers looked at this very carefully. Right, I and and hope so. so. and so
2: I think, I, I'm not saying the Times violated the law, and I'm actually sort of agnostic about whether in this instance it was the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do. Um, I do think there is a difference between you know, situations in which there may be security implications to what you're publishing and a government official comes to you and say, hey, can you withhold that information? And the specific case of protected identities where under the law and custom, the the default assumption is different from virtually every other area.
0: I I buy that completely. I guess my only point is that no one, and certainly not the executive branch, should automatically expect the press to be deferential on these issues. They should expect the press to push the envelope. That's what we as a society want and need the press to do. And, yeah, those are different bases. But the argument that we sh- we expect deference or there should be a bias in in favor of deference to the executive branch, forget it.
1: Yeah. Um there's also just worth noting as we close this point that um the New York Times was actually I believe not the first publication to print the name of the head of the, of the director of the counterterrorism center. Um I think it was Gawker.
2: That's interesting. Although the Gawker. Yeah,
1: yeah, John Cook at Gawker published it. And after I believe uh, and our readers can check me on this but a profile or a piece written by Greg Miller uh uh for the Post,
2: right, withheld
1: it. In which he withheld it, and this this is a figure that achieves some mythic status because he's portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty, and he's gaunt and chain smoking and dresses like an undertaker, and, and everybody to Islam. knows who he is. And everyone knows who he is. Newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, they wouldn't put it in the newspaper. Yeah, but so Gawker published it first, I believe. But it's interesting that I mean, I think this is also a bit of the, you know the New York Times effect. I mean, right? When right. The New York it doesn't Times matter knows till him. the Times does Yeah, it it's, right. it's you know, it's the holy G D New York Times. So it, yeah, but it's it's um. I'm with you, though. I mean, it, it was interesting that it didn't get a lot of... It didn't seem to get the traction over the weekend that I thought an event of that magnitude might. But that's also maybe my journalist glasses, uh, leading me to believe that things are more significant than, you know, normal people do. <laughs> um, So let's stay on drones, and we're going to switch to my wordplay. Um, I'm, uh, this week, Adam Entis at the was- Wall Street Journal, um, who has really been on a tear, by the way, with amazing stories about the drone program uh, and doing a terrific job, uh, did a piece... Uh, I'm just going to read from it here, so I get this very so I get this correct. Under a classified addendum to the directive approved by President Obama on the targeted killing program with the drones, the CIA's drone program in Pakistan was exempted from a so-called imminent threat requirement at least until U.S. forces completed their pullout from Afghanistan. What this means is, is that the CIA can do signature strikes and more targeted drone attacks on militant leaders who've been identified without collecting specific evidence on the target that it poses an imminent threat to the United States. So the significance here, of course, being the question of when the United States conducted signature strikes on suspected al-Qaeda compounds in Pakistan and killed an American and an Italian hostage, um, if they had been on a shorter leash and been required to follow more of the higher, presumably higher standards as they would in other countries, um, would this unfortunate uh, accident have happened or not? Um, I think it's probably an impossible question to answer, but it, w- it was striking to me to learn that there is effectively a, I mean, a lower threshold, right? Let's call it what it is for intelligence and proof that you need to conduct strikes in Pakistan, and and certainly would seem to indicate the degree to which the administration thinks that a the Al Qaeda threat in Pakistan is, you know, needs to be addressed very quickly. And I would think also, I mean, you guys know, I think that the degree to which they also feel like do we think that they think that the risks of collateral damage are somehow less in those areas in Pakistan?
2: No, so the um so first of all the fact that Pakistan was exempted from the heightened standards of the 2013 uh guidance uh, is not new. The uh details in Adam's story are new, but the fact that Pakistan was exempted was not. And the reason is exactly what Adam reports in that story, which is that, uh, Pakistan is considered part of the AFPAC theater of war, or at least the border area is, and the military and CIA regard, uh, those as sort of ongoing operations in the, in the AFPAC theater. And so the judgment of the administration was, you know, leave, leave theater operations as they have been although there have been many fewer strikes so they they probably have changed the guidance there too at least somewhat leave the theater operations as they have been but as you're talking about drone strikes outside of theater these are the uh the new rules and the assumption was since we're pulling out of Pakistan and our of Afghanistan that will cease to be a theater of operations by the end of 2014 and then these new rules would apply there too, except, of course, that that didn't happen.
0: Well, um, and, and, and except that what, however small that window may be, bad things can happen in it, right. and look what happened. I mean, I, I guess what fascinates me about this story is not the, the sort of policy questions that relate to the theater or the strategic objectives with respect to al-Qaeda. What fascinates me is the impact on our domestic discussion about drones and about the prosecution of a global war on terror which seems to be somehow the paradigm that we've come back to Um and it's it's really so i think what i find interesting and i'm curious whether you think this is going to have impact what's interesting about this revelation to me is it it seems to show the administration having said one thing about the way it conducts its program and the standards and the process and doing something else is that is that actually what's going on here or does it just look that way or am i misunderstanding it
2: so i think the a lot of people have played it that way but i actually think the administration is taking a little bit of a bum rap here and in fact maybe giving itself a bit of a bum rap
1: would not be the first time
2: so (laughs) so the 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 first the first thing is that this could have happened even if you had applied the new uh rules. Um, imagine this were not a signature strike, but you had a, a named individual whom you were absolutely certain was there, and you watched this compound for a long period of time and developed what we what what the language of the guidance is near certainty that there would be no civilian casualties. Uh, it is still possible that they have, would have hostages locked in the basement somewhere. Mm-hmm. And these people don't have free range so that, you know, they don't wander around the compound. And so I think that's still perfectly possible even had it been in Yemen under the new guidance. The second thing is, you know, um, I, I think the rap on signature strikes is very wrong. Um, People are very dismissive of the idea that you can pick up a signature that, you know, a pattern of life that is only consistent with an Al-Qaeda compound. But I haven't seen any evidence that anyone's presented that signature strikes are producing more civilian casualties than personality strikes. And in fact, what you're trying to pick up is often less subtle, it's, oh, sorry, is often, often more pickable up, uh, less subtle than the, than the identities of particular individuals in the compound. And so I'm, I'm not at all convinced that what happened here wouldn't have happened under whatever other rules you might have applied somewhere else. And I think the administration is certainly right to be apologizing for what turns out to have been a grievous error. But at the end of the day, I look at it and I say they had to be, they were confident that this was an Al Qaeda compound and that their targets were Al Qaeda and they were right.
0: Yeah, I, look, I, I hear all that and I guess as a relative layperson on these issues, my reaction is you're looking at the trees and not the forest. Um, we, ha- we're having a debate in this country about how we want to protect our own security and combat terrorism abroad, what resources we want to apply, and how enmeshed do we want to be, how enmeshed do we want our military to be in these other places around the world where this messy stuff is going on. Drones were held up as a solution to the problem. And now, because of this incident, we're realizing that However good the signatures are at discerning that this is an Al-Qaeda compound as opposed to some other kind of compound, it's a compound. It's got people in it. This is distance warfare, and it's not discriminant in the way that we as a society are usually comfortable with or are used to. Now, it may be that we're happy to accept that price because the alternative, which is inserting our personnel, is much less palatable to us. But it, what I'm saying is, it kind of rips the curtain off the argument.
2: Look, nobody should ever have been arguing that this is an antiseptic, error-free zone. where... don't,
0: don't make a straw man out of it.
2: No, 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 no. I'm 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 saying, it, like, it, if if what this curtain rips off is the is the the fact that errors, including very tragic errors, are possible. Um, It was never responsible of analysts to suggest otherwise, and it was probably irresponsible of Brennan to say that there had been no civilian casualties in 2011. Um, You know, and people like it was always possible to oversell this thing and the Obama administration fell in love with it. And Probably oversold it, including to itself. And that said, it's, the conclusion from that is not that this is not an extremely valuable program that has produced a lot of real benefits.
0: Okay. So last question, broadening this out a little bit farther, which is you, Benjamin Wittes, have been involved in debates, um, over the last few years on autonomous weapons. Um, and it's, you know, the, the visceral component of uh, warfighting using boots on the ground is that you look the guy in the eyes before you shoot him, right? Drones don't let us do that. We use technology to do the best we can, and we accept the cost because we would rather not put boots on the ground. Autonomous weapons take that a step further, don't they? And so if this accident reveals a degree of discomfort or revulsion, at the idea of not being able to look our enemy in the eyes before we shoot him. What does that say about the future of autonomous weapons?
2: So I have no desire for our people to look the enemy in the eye before they shoot them. I think this is a romantic residue of a chivalric tradition that's wrapped up in, frankly, bullshit conceptions of masculinity, and I have no interest in any of it. And I feel about this as bloodlessly as I feel about the possibility of driverless cars, which is to say that if you can do it in a fashion that is more efficient, more effective, and minimizes, you know, bad impacts, maximizes uh, good impacts and minimizes bad impacts better than human involvement, then I'm for it. And if you can't, then I'm against it. And I have a show-me-the-money attitude to it, exactly the same as I do with Google and driverless cars. If you know, if the accident rate is going to go down, I have no attachment to the idea of human drivers. If the accident rate is going to go up, I'm against it. And that's exactly the way I feel about autonomous weapons.
0: Well, I don't know about you, Shane, but I'm going to be reading Isaac Asimov's iRobot over the weekend.
1: Damn, girl. <laughs> what do you think, Shane? Do you, do, you, do, you,
2: do, you, do you subscribe to bullshit conceptions of masculinity? All the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am I'm trying it's to butcher that every day of the week. You can... uh, no, I mean, look, I, mean, I, think, look I, I think both of you are making very strong and persuasive points. On this, I think, I'll just say what was notable to me about what happened with this whole event, which we didn't get a chance to talk to yesterday, that being the killing of the, accidentally killing the hostages, A, it was striking and notable and, I think, unfortunate that it, it takes an American accidentally getting killed to remind people that, yes, civilian deaths are happening. Not that people in this country have forgotten that, but it got in a lot of the press, a lot of press, including from where I work, because of the fact that it was an American. Um, what I also think is very interesting to watch is the administration has said it is going to pay compensation to the families of both victims, the Italian uh, Giovanni Laporto and Warren Weinstein, the American hostage. And it was also reported uh, recently that Warren Weinstein's family did pay a $250,000 ransom to try and get him out, and the administration reportedly is going to uh, make clear in its new hostage policy going forward that they won't try to stop a family from paying a ransom. Um, these are all interesting and now intersecting facts, right? I mean, presumably the government knew the Weinstein family was trying to pay a ransom and didn't do anything to stop them, which undercuts the idea, frankly, that they had any intention of ever prosecuting a family member for paying a ransom. Uh, but, you know, the fact that they're going to pay compensation to them now, too, I mean, that's, I, it's notable. I don't know exactly know what to make of it, but it certainly seems like the administration taking accountability for what it did. That said, as my colleague Nancy Youssef and I reported last week, the drone program's not stopping, mm-hmm. right? And we talked to defense officials in particular who said it's unfortunate, but it's a war. This is what happens in a war. Mm-hmm. Um And I'm sure there are people at the CIA who are sick to death over the fact that, that you know, they were sure that these guys weren't there, and now obviously they're not here at all. So, but I mean, in terms of, the, I mean, you know, I guess I'm with Ben on the whole question, honestly, about, you know, whether or not, the fact that the drone takes away the opportunity for you to look your enemy in the eye i mean i i i guess i ultimately look at that as a good thing i mean that I hesitate to go go that far in saying this is all good things but yeah i mean the notion of that it's it's not real combat unless you're on the ground and looking them in the eye oh, I, guess I don't know if that's, that's what not, you were saying that's but that's
0: not quite what i mean although i would agree that there is that cultural component and maybe it is bullshit chivalric whatever chivalric um, chivalric yes the but bullshit
2: chivalric masculinity
0: edition. masculinity yeah <laughs> but i i think that the other component is about um culpability it's about accountability and i mean because b-52s are anonymous too right you can drop bombs from way up high in the sky and you don't know exactly what you're hitting and we did that in dresden and you know that's that's war as you said I think there are two components here that that distinguish it. Um one is that this was the CIA. It wasn't our war fighting right. agency and I do think that makes a difference politically. Um and I think that, you know, John McCain coming out and saying again what he's been saying for a long time, which is that he wants this to be under the Pentagon. Um I you know, I think that has more resonance with people as a result of this accident. And I also think that there's, um, that, that, well, we'll just let that go. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And That's we cool. have been killing people for a long time without looking them in the eye. Right? Yeah. yeah.
2: Tactical Tomahawk's been around for more than 20 yeah. years. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, B-17's World War Two. Yeah. Um, okay. Tomorrow, let's move on to your wordplay. It won't be chivalric. Um, uh, but <laughs> it's going to be about Bashar Al-Assad and, his apparently shaky hold on power in Syria.
0: Yeah, so there's nothing chivalric about Bashar al-Assad. Um, but I was struck, uh, this week by a, sh- a-, a shift on the ground in Syria that has produced a sudden shift in the media narrative about the Syrian civil war, which, you know, for weeks has been, this is a quagmire. It's going to go on like this for years. There's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, and, uh, all of a sudden this week we saw a story from, Liz Sly in the Washington Post, we saw a piece in the AP, and we saw today a a story um, by Ann Bernard and a couple of colleagues in the New York Times, all arguing uh, that Assad is looking weaker and losing momentum on the battlefield. In fact, maybe the battlefield momentum is reversing in a few places, and that the capability of the Syrian government to keep fighting is under threat, and there are... um, so what's driving these stories is, uh, a set of rebel advances in Idlib province. Uh, this seems to be driven by a greater degree of unity amongst mainly pretty extreme Islamist, uh, forces, including, uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, uh, Jabir al-Nusra, but others as well. Um, they seem to be working together and more effective, but, the reason why these stories are highlighting the, perhaps, um, the weakening capacity of the Syrian state to fight is two things. Um, a lot of anecdotal evidence that, uh, young Syrians, even young Alawis who, who would, you know, be assumed to be closest to the regime are refusing to serve. They're avoiding being drafted into the Syrian army. Uh, and their families and communities are supporting them in hiding from, uh, from being drafted because the families and communities anticipate the collapse of the Syrian state and want their young men close to home to protect them rather than being sent to die in some far-off battlefield. And the other piece of evidence is evidence of infighting within the top layers of the Syrian regime. Uh, two of the four heads of various uh, security apparatuses inside Syria were fired over the last month and apparently in a rancorous argument amongst them, and some of these are members of the ruling Assad-Makhlouf families, uh, and one of them was apparently beaten up so badly by the thugs of the other that he ended up in the hospital and reportedly died this week. And so this degree of infighting in the regime is very new. This is a regime that had been pretty tight uh, and pretty unified in self-defense. So if it's fracturing at the top, that doesn't bode well. Now, um, I, you know, it's very, very interesting for a couple reasons. Number one is if there's a sudden success by the rebels on the ground, which I don't think would necessarily mean they take Damascus and topple Assad, but that he loses any effective control over a large majority of Syrian territory, then we have a scenario of sort of catastrophic success uh, for the U.S. and its right. partners in the region because there's nothing in place on the ground to replace this Syrian state. and um, And the fact that it's some of the most extreme Islamist opposition forces that are that are having this military success bodes ill. I.e. I from... not the
1: guys we've been trying to train and equip.
0: Not Right, because we're training and equipping them, and they're just not quite out there yet. At least they're trained. And
2: equipped.
1: <laughs> they're <laughs> <too>.
0: Yes. <laughs> trained and equipped to do what now? To go in and do battle with the guys who just won the day? So right. this bodes ill for Syria's future. The preparations are not there for a post-conflict environment. But um, But the other interesting thing about it is that, you know, it might not mean that much because... We have to remember that the people fighting in Syria right now are not just the Assad regime, but the Assad regime bolstered by Hezbollah and by the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, uh, and Iran and Hezbollah have at least as much of a stake in the survival of a friendly regime in Damascus as that friendly regime has in its own survival. And so even if the Assad clan is fracturing, even if the Syrian military is weakening, The Iranians and Hezbollah have quite a lot of capacity to keep fighting on the ground. Hezbollah probably has more capacity than the Syrian army and probably has had for a while. And so I don't think, even if these developments are real and meaningful, I don't think they necessarily spell a quick end
1: to the war. Are there any signs that Assad is trying to reach out and somehow cut a deal with the U.S. and save his own skin?
0: Uh, I don't think we see indications of that. We do see some indications that some in the regime, of course we don't know who, you know, how authoritative, um, are interested in pursuing political dialogue. The Russians hosted a meeting in Moscow a couple weeks ago that had wider representation than we've seen um from some of the other efforts, but that could also be that it was the Russians hosting it and not because of any changes on the ground.
1: You see another interview with Charlie Rose. Yeah. <laughs> Lay out his new position. Yeah. His, his Seeing how plan. bloodshot
0: his eyes are, how sleepless his nights seem to be. Those really
1: were extraordinary interviews, by the way, when he was pressing on the barrel bombs. And he was like, what's a barrel bomb? A bomb is a bomb. I mean, it really was astonishing. And then to see that followed up by the 60 Minutes Report with that absolutely shocking footage of the sarin gas attacks was, yeah.
0: It That's is, a- it is a truly a parallel reality. And it tells you something about just how, how Deeply totalitarian this regime was and to the extent that it still controls things is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, tomorrow, why don't you kick us off? What's your object this week?
0: Well, I have here this lovely, colorful, thick, and when you drop it on the table, it goes thud report, uh, called the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review 2015. Issued jointly by the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now, you national security. Scintillating. Scintillating reading. And I just can't wait to dive into this. You national security types, uh, are probably very, very familiar with the quadrennial defense review that the, that the Pentagon does every four years, as the name would suggest. Uh, and the State Department under Hillary Clinton started this four years ago. They issued the very first diplomacy and development review trying to emulate the pentagon's effort to look back learn lessons from experience and use those to drive organizational change and strategic coherence going forward in the pentagon it's a well-honed exercise and it's not just window dressing like say the national security strategy which nobody pays attention to for anything and the question about the qddr the state aid version is whether it would follow the Pentagon model in impact or whether it would just be window dressing. So this second iteration is in many ways the real test case. The first one identified a huge number of issues around coordination between state and AID, around how the regional and functional parts of the State Department work together, but mostly what it tried to do was forge compromises between competing bureaucratic interests and uh, and we have to see whether this QDDR does any better at setting a direction and whether the State Department and USAID will respond to that. So I look forward to reading these 90-odd colorful pages.
1: They are and colorful.
0: I, I will report back to you next week.
1: Okay. All right. Ben?
2: Well, I also have an object that involves a stack of papers that goes thud if you drop it, but they are not colorful. They are all black and white, and they are... uh court documents from all over the this country. This true so
1: much about your world.
2: Yes. There are court documents um, from all over the country involving a new kind of crime which prosecutors are calling sextortion uh, which you uh, can probably guess is a portmanteau of sex and extortion. Really? And there is a um, rash of these <laughs> cases um, where people are uh, hacking each other's computers, uh, and getting webcams to take, uh, images of generally, uh, sometimes underage, sometimes adult, uh, victims, and then using those images to extort the production of, uh, pornographic images. Uh, so for example, the case, uh, that I first came across that involved sextortion. Uh, the defendant, quote, would obtain intimate images, this is a very talented hacker, of, and videos of women and teenage girls from the victim computers without the authorization of these, uh, the owner of images, of those images and videos. He would then contact the victim women and girls and threaten to post those intimate images and videos on the internet unless they provided him with additional intimate images and videos. Now the FBI in that case, uh which eventually pled out, estimates that there were over two hundred and thirty victims. Oh um, my of, from this one guy? One guy, of whom forty-four were underage. Another case that I've found uh involves an international sex case, uh people uh, uh you know attacking victims in Ireland and um Canada. Uh, and these cases seem to be cropping up all over the place. Uh, and I think it's a, uh, partly because it involves attacks on the computers, uh, it is a new form of personal cybersecurity issue that we haven't talked a lot about. So Wells Bennett and I have decided to do a study of sextortion cases and try to isolate all of the ones that have been prosecuted both under state and federal law. And what we're finding is There's a lot of them. Um, So stay tuned. Right now it's a pile of papers, um, but maybe uh, it will be a very grim uh, kind of uh, wordplay in the weeks and months to come.
0: Hey, Ben, do you have any masking tape? Here in the office? To
2: put over your. Uh, you know webcam. it. I
0: want to cover up my webcam right now.
1: Yeah, like if this doesn't make you want to, I mean, if the NSA, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in GCHQ threat didn't make you want to do it, then wow.
2: I'm much more <laughs> afraid of little brother than big brother.
1: Yeah, you know, and this is this makes me think like this is the precursor to the spider drone, right? Right. You, know, you and Gabby write about. Well, in the
2: so book. Thi- so this actually the Michangos case, the one I just read you from, is one of the examples with which we start the book, and that's how we got. Yeah. That's how Wells and I got interested in the
1: issue. Yeah, it, it's true that 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 is truly awful, freaky, awful, freaky stuff. Okay, so my object lesson. So tomorrow, last week, you were talking about spy gardening. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go with spy fashion. Now, can you guys see what this is? I'm wearing it right now. Of course
0: with you it's spy fashion. Is that an alligator Mm -hmm. on
2: your tie clip? It's an alligator
1: clip. It's an alligator clip, exactly. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome, right? So, I mean, for those who don't get the reference, an alligator clip in the old days is what you would take and you would clip onto a copper wire at a phone switching station or that's how you do a wire tap you would actually tap it on it it was called an alligator clip because the little it pinchers little look jaws. like the alligator jaws so i love i got this in um a great store in philadelphia i think is where i got this and um i always like wearing this like when i'm interviewing uh like senior officials or i think i wore this to the cia christmas party it's (laughs) like my own little private subtle subversion does anyone
0: ever pick up on it
1: no no one does because it's really it's kind of hard to see unless you come right up on that
0: silver on silver alligator yeah and
1: see him but he is a genuine alligator clip and it's just my favorite little uh token of uh spy fashion.
0: awesome yeah yeah
1: it's even better than my like sort of like James bondy glasses (laughs) Um. which
0: we want you to wear to the podcast recording
2: next week oh
1: totally um, and, and
2: Shane will be wearing the alligator clip at the beer summit.
1: Yes. Which
2: you should attend.
1: I will definitely, I will definitely wear it. I am going to, I will, I will wear a tie and the alligator clip. And so you will see it and me and all of us there, uh, in person next Thursday, May 7th. Be sure to get your tickets. Uh, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find all links to all of our great podcasts on our show page at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us, all, all of us there as well. And when you download the show at Instacast, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, please, please, please remember to leave us a rating and comment so that other people can find out about the show. Rational Security is edited as always by Jen Howell. This week our music was performed by the bullshit Cheval Rick Chorale. <laughs> If only. <laughs> With backup, as always, from the inimitable Sophia Yan. Thank you very much to her. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittis and Tamara Coffin Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week.